Okay, so we have the pleasure of having Dr. Zilot Lopez, intuition, clinical, tra- clinical training, life experiences, and some luck. She currently helps individuals and families lead a happier life. Aside from providing mental health services to better the lives of her clients, she enjoys providing coaching services to entrepreneurs and those looking to increase their emotional intelligence. She enjoys comedy, singing in her shower, and cooking new dishes. And recently, she was featured on the television network Univision, speaking on the challenges associated with mental health. So, you go by Z, right? Z? Yeah. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Cynthia. Um, so I just went through a little bit of your bio, but was there, do you want to just do a short introduction of yourself and like what you do so the listeners know? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And, you know, I love it that with a lot of Latinos are like, oh, doctora, but unfortunately, yeah, I'm not a doctor. But um, it sometimes feels like that, you know. I like to consider therapists, therapistas, psychotherapeutas, psychotherapists as mental health professionals that are there to help, like a doctor would, right, with the body, yeah. except we work with the mind. So a little bit about me is that I'm in private practice and I actually am hoping to start something new within private practice, which is providing Latinos with a secondary option other than county or providers that are not familiar with the culture. It's very often that I find there's not enough Latino psychotherapists Mm -hmm. in private practice to serve the community. So that's definitely something I'm passionate about and providing services in native tongue. I didn't learn English until I was five, so I know when I'm in my feelings, you know, I'm feeling some Drake, when I'm feeling some Drake kind of way, that I feel it in Spanish. Mm -hmm. I I definitely express myself in such, and I know that others out there feel the same. That's so great. And so when you're talking about these services that the community needs, like, what do these services look like? Because I think if someone doesn't have experience with them firsthand, it's kind of hard to, like, understand, like, how you help people with their, like, different just lead a healthier, happier life. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think that what happens with Latinos is this kind of like shame, like you're secretly asking for something at the store, kind of like when you go to the store and say, hey, can I get a double scoop but don't tell my wife? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So when people start asking about therapy, the first thing they do is, you know, they go to the comadres, they go to their friends, they go to the people they love. And it's very rare that somebody will say, hey, you know what, I've actually been in therapy for two years. Mm-hmm. And the biggest shift I'm seeing in the Latino community as a provider is that there's less shame associated with it. Sometimes I'm ear hustling, you know, at a Mexican grocery store or I'm at Target and I hear people say, oh, my therapist said, and it's a beautiful win mm-hmm. because the more the more exposure there is in the Latino community, the much more people are willing to navigate that or ask for help. Yeah. So is that, um, do you work mostly with like the Latino community uh, and like, are you here in Los Angeles? I am, yeah. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm in Sherman Oaks. So it's a great mix between right by Van Nuys and like, yeah, you know, they're nice mix. And why I say that is because my private practice is accessible to the, what we call, you know, those that are able to afford it Mm -hmm. and those that are able to make the sacrifice and make it happen, right? So I definitely am big on considering what it is that the person makes in order to access services. 
I know I grew up in a humble home and I had two mm-hmm. parents working, you know, six days a week, 12 hours a day trying to make it happen. So I serve the Latino community. And in addition, I also serve young professionals. So they may or may not be Latinos. But what I love is that I can definitely relate as a business owner, the pressures I can relate as a, yeah. a former graduate student trying to get through school and just keep sane without losing my mind. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a lot more about your graduate school experience but I also I still wanted to go a little bit more into what your specialty specifically is like I know in your bio you talk about working on emotional intelligence but can you just yeah so what are your specialties like what do you what are your areas that you regularly work on yeah so my niche is definitely Latino family therapy and that's definitely through the unity and the collective so I'm a firm believer that when I see a person I actually see their entire family even if those members aren't present Mm-hmm. And I believe truly that for a provider to give treatment that is going to help and work, we need to understand the cultural basis and the ideas and the values. So when I see Latinos in practice, I ask, okay, is this much more of the collective of what they're wanting or the individual? It's interesting because as somebody that was born here in this country but raised by two immigrant parents, there's this balance we need to keep between collective and independent. And with Latino cultures, if we don't take in consideration what the collective means and the honor it brings to a person, we're not going to be treating them as a whole person. So aside from that, Another niche I have is working with young professionals that are working on the I before the we. And what I mean that, it's so many people nowadays are going into committed long-term relationships and or marriage. And later, it's come crumbling down. As we know, the divorce rate is pretty high. And we're asking ourselves, why is this happening? And it's because we don't build the I before the we. We don't know who we are. We don't know what it is that we need prior to getting into relationship with others. Oh, wow. That's that's a heavy stuff that you're working on. That's so great. Um, yeah. And those are both so important, and you're right. Like, it's important to constantly be working on yourself and the different, just what you need to grow and be in a place. Like, that makes a lot of sense. And it's really hard work to do, but I think what you're talking about in the first part of building in the collective, right, and considering mm-hmm. someone's family. So how does that... I feel like in our society, we are so trained to only think about individuals and never the collective. So like, how do, how does having that shift impact the work that you do? And like, what, what are folks able to, you know, kind of work on that in other settings who are not focused on collectives that they just completely miss? Yeah, so, you know, frequently this is what I get. You know, I get a young professional that's coming in and, you know, their relationships are conflictual with their family, their partners at work. They're just, it's a hot mess. Mm. So when I talk to them, I ask them, is this what you want or is this what you should be, you could be, or what you were told you're supposed to do? I have extremely successful, quote unquote, you know, individuals that I treat, but they're not happy. They're doing what, you know, their abuelita told them to do. They're doing what the tia Mm. told them to do versus what they want to do. And it's really an understanding what is it that I want versus the collective that we make that breakthrough. Or, you know, very frequently I have the individual that comes in and says, like, I just can't take it. Like, you know, my wife's family is overbearing. It's all about what the family wants versus what's good for us as a, you know, a couple. So family can hit a lot of pressure. And I feel like that's definitely... Um, I felt it a little bit when I was trying to figure out when I wanted to go to law school. My parents were very insistent that I go sooner rather than later. So I can relate to that. (laughs) 
Right, absolutely. It's definitely interesting. You know, one of my favorites, and I do workshops on this, is Latinas with Difficult Mothers. Because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Latina mothers, I mean, we love them, right? Yes, like, they take of care of us so well. And at the same time, it's like, you know, 10 feet, no pressure. Like, they're like, ¿Y cuando tenemos a casa? Like, when are you getting married? When are you going to have kids? And you're just a career woman trying to make it happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm constantly talking to my family about how I am not okay with them constantly asking me, ¿Y el novio? ¿Y el novio? I'm just like, Right. <laughs> There's so many yeah. other things you could ask me about. Why is that the one thing you constantly ask? You know? Yeah. Right. Yes, exactly. So those are the type of themes that definitely come up over and over. And I'm just addressing them, but also with a cultural perspective. Yeah, that's so key and so important. And it's like, it shows why we need more Latinas, like completing these programs and like going into higher education and being in these different positions. Yeah, alone, just being a Latina with a graduate degree and having no debt, I'm part of the 2%. And when I tell people this, they say, what? And I'm yes, I'm part of the 2% of the population that has a graduate degree. I have a year-round tan. My parents came to this country undocumented, and mm-hmm. I'm debt-free. I, owe, I have no student loans. That's so incredible, and that's so awesome. As someone who's going to have a ton of student loans, I, that's, yeah. congratulations. That's a big accomplishment. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about your graduate school experience. Like what, what did you expect going into the program and then what was your experience like? What were some things that you've that were unexpected challenges? Yeah, you know, one of the biggest unexpected challenges was grad school itself. So I'm a firm believer in a higher power, and I personally call it God. And I know that God was talking to me throughout this process. And I graduated from my undergrad with a really great GPA, yet I was denied three times from grad school. And at the time, I didn't get it. You know, I was like, oh, maybe this isn't for me, but I persisted. Mm -hmm. And on my fourth try, I applied to Mount St. Mary's in downtown L.A. It's a predominantly all-girls Catholic school private. And it's definitely something that was way far out of my reach financially. I, you know, I told my family and they said, no, Miha, it's really expensive. Save your money. Go to a Cal State, you know, go to something local. And my heart just spoke to me. So I decided to apply and I got in. And I think it's been one of the most beautiful blessings that I have received thus far in my life. The program at my school is very unique. It's the only one in the nation that trains psychotherapists to provide services in Spanish for the Latino client. And I love it because when I got out, I had a firm base in understanding how cultural plays a huge part in treatment versus what we were taught for the traditional models, that it's just treating the symptoms versus the person. It's a little scary to think that that's the only program that does, like teaches that. Like, well, Yeah. How are people graduating without like information like this where they can give culturally competent training, like services? I couldn't agree more with you, and that's exactly the shift we're seeing in community mental health. I would love to see the shift go further into private practice. See, the thing is, we'll see this in communities, clinics, clinicas, but we won't see it much in private practice because people kind of just do what they need to. So what's the difference between private and, like, non-private practice? Like, can you just, I'm not sure, I don't, not familiar with it, so I, Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, so I'll relate a little bit, especially for, you know, your listeners that are in the legal realm. So it's exactly like working either for a firm or working on your own and building your own firm. So private practice is like working for a firm that has, you know, your ability for you to become a partner one day or be the main partner, right? 
Uh-huh. And community-based health is way different. It's a completely different beast. I worked community mental health for three years, and that is through the Department of Mental Health. And across the nation, it is for people that have a lack of resources, whether it be financially or it's for families, perhaps that have children that were born here, but parents that perhaps are undocumented. So you get a lot of trauma walking in. You get a lot of, so it teaches you more than anything to have a way higher level of compassion. Okay. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, it must be hard always to work with individuals who maybe you might help, like, in listening to their stories and wanting to give them services, you, um, maybe, like, internalize some of their emotions or, um, just out of having some empathy, you know, it can be really hard to be, to work with individuals, like, the hard parts, the hardest parts of their lives. And so I was just wondering, because it's something that we talk about a lot in law school, like secondary trauma and, you know, how to make sure that you're taking care of yourself so that you can do your work as best as possible. So, like, have you, like, what do you think about secondary trauma? And, you know, do you have any tips or skills for working through it or taking care of yourself through it? Absolutely, man. I love that you asked because I actually, they make us do this when we're in grad school as psychotherapists. So in answering that question, vicarious trauma, you know, the secondary is very real. I actually felt it while I was in school where I was picking up the feelings that my client had in regards to experiencing trauma. So the first thing they suggest when we are in school for therapy is to go to therapy ourselves. And I'm a really big component that if I'm going to recommend anything to you, I need to do it first. Healed people heal others. Wounded people wound others. So we definitely want to be the healer healing others. So in going to my own therapy, I had the sacred space to process that vicarious trauma that I was hearing from others. And I noticed that in collaborating with colleagues in different fields, especially litigators or attorneys, that there's a lot of unprocessed there. Mm -hmm. There's so much that, you know, they hear and they see and even just on paper going through, you know, the court statements or the court readings. That's exactly what needs to be worked on. So if a therapy isn't for a person, I highly suggest doing either meditation or reading books that will help for personal development. An amazing author that I've used as a tool throughout my years as a psychotherapist to help me with vicarious trauma is Don Miguel Ruiz. He he wrote the book, The Four Agreements, The Mastery of Love, Living a Life of Awareness, He and His Sons. And I love it. It's an amazing tool that helps you further understand what it really means to be in connection with others. Oh, my God. It's so wild that you mentioned it because I just a friend shared with me the four agreements or. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I was reading through it and I actually posted on it about it on the set of Donna's Instagram. And so many uh, quite a few people commented talking about how how much they loved reading the four attachments and how like it just kind of made a difference in their life and they used it as tools. So it's, it's wild that you mentioned it because I was definitely starting to look into the book and I hear his son also wrote a book called The Five Attachments that someone else recommended when I posted about this. Yeah, and there's actually the fifth agreement and then there's living the life of awareness. Those Okay, that sounds really good. I'm going to take a look at this because it's too much coincidence now that two people have mentioned them to me. Right, yeah. And I just, I have to tell you, I read each of his books a couple times a year just as a friendly reminder to check myself and be available emotionally to those I'm healing. So what are some signs that you see um, with yourself or with individuals so that you can recognize? Because I think part of the... Uh, difficulty is recognizing right when you're experiencing something difficult or going through some trauma just like being able to um, 
um, like self-reflect and being like, okay, I maybe need to take additional steps to support myself or anything like that. What are some signs that you can identify for when you should maybe like pause, you know, and take a breath? Yeah, I think the three main ones is this. I think that the body speaks louder than anything I have ever known in my life. So if my body is literally repelling whatever it is that I'm doing as far as my work, I need to check in with myself. For example, you know, as a litigator, as a therapist, as a doctor, as a nurse, whoever in your profession, if you're seeing a client, a patient, whoever, and you're getting some type of feeling inside your body like you want to throw up or there's something that you just don't want to be in the room with them, the energy is so heavy that might be a big sign that you're hitting burnout pretty quick Mm. because you're not able to contain that and understand that it's theirs and it's not yours Mm. so listen to your body if your body is literally rejecting that situation honor it don't just tell it to shut up yeah that's number one and then number two i would say is definitely check in with another professional in your field check-ins are so important even if it's just a friendly like hey girl you know how are you doing how are you feeling about this case how are you feeling about this process because the number one thing the human wants and needs as a basic component of existence is the need to be heard not to be judged not to be given a solution like oh you should do this it's just thoroughly to be listened to So asking for what you need in a check-in. And the third one I would say is definitely self-care. Fill your cup first. It's just like the airplane example, right? If you put on the mask, you're able to help your dependents and those that need help within a a plane that's going down. Yeah, I really like um, the second one of just like having regular check-ins because I really like thinking about, you know, how we can be accountable to each other and like who I want to be accountable to just to like as a way of forming and making sure we have, I'm in part of like an intentional community. So it's really Mm -hmm. nice to Um, be reminded of like checking in on the people we care about just as a way to make sure like they have the support that they need so I I really like that ask that yeah yeah absolutely and it's really important to you know just really see the trends that's going on in our society recently this year we lost two very important individuals to suicide and people did had no idea they're probably the strongest members on the team but in actuality they're suffering so check-ins are highly important back a little bit I feel like we didn't really explore what your grad school experience was like and I imagine you know like it's always it's difficult to stay at something you know that's challenging but when you know you it's what you want to do so like can we talk a little bit about more about the application process and you know what pushed you to do it because I just know that applications always take so much time and effort so what was motivating you through it and yeah Yeah, you know, here's what I believe. Um, Just like there's an LSAT, right, like for litigators or whatnot, or there's the pre-nursing, I had the GRE. And the GRE, I didn't do quite well, and I took it a second time. And like you said, it's that persistence to really just want it. My background is a licensed cosmetologist. I've been doing that for the past 13 years, hair and makeup, weaves, you know, fades in the barbershop. And what I learned from there to help me get through grad school was so important. And a lot of people say, well, why did you switch careers? And in fact, I didn't switch. I transitioned what I learned from one to the other and back and forth, right? Mm, So this is what I learned. The human wants to be heard non-judgmentally and just thoroughly. 
And grad school helped me hone in on those skills. As a barber, I learned that all men wanted was not, you know, aside from a great haircut, is to be heard. Aside from their wives judging them, aside from their mothers, their daughters, right? So what helped me get through grad school really, really is being in alignment with my purpose. Every single day when I had no sleep trying to get through that last 10, 12-page paper, knowing this is my purpose. This is exactly what my paycheck is going to be later for another person to heal. And true to this day, I still feel that way. It's like when we fall in love with the person you just know. When I went through my program from the first day, I just knew my soul had met my purpose. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, it's nice to have that feeling. And I've had it a couple of times where I just feel like, okay, yeah, this is this is, feels really right. But that's so that's so key. And I'm so glad you have that. And like you've been able to find a career that you really love. Yeah. So what were classes like in a grad school program? Like what were, you know, like, what were some things that were surprising about the experience? Yeah, you know, what was really surprising, I believe, more than anything in my program personally as a psychotherapist, is the amount of personal development we get ourselves. I thought that I was, you know, okay. I don't think I was great, and I don't think I was full of trauma. But boy, was I wrong. When I started doing the work and reflection papers and how, you know, how was your childhood and, you know, were your parents really that great of parents or you just thought they were? It blew my mind. I think mm-hmm. where I am today, Day, thank you know thanking for grad school I am a complete different person that is much more developed emotionally and my emotional intelligence has risen to the top because of the work that I do in grad school you have to put not only like your your book smarts into grad school but you also have to take your a game up on emotional development it pushes you to really look under the rug to see the dirt so I I'm somewhat familiar with emotional intelligence and just kind of I can understand what folks mean when they talk about emotional intelligence but can you just for folks who like haven't heard of that concept or the term can you explain a little bit of like what is considered emotional intelligence and what folks mean when they say there's like an emotionally intelligent person yeah I I believe you know there's different types of intelligence there's book smarts there's street smarts and then there's emotional intelligence and the best way I could describe it is when you actually listen but also understand what your intuition is telling you there's this gut feeling that we get inside us and a lot of times like I'd say like 80% of people they try to deny it or tell it to shut up but emotional intelligence is wait a minute my body my mind and my spirit is telling me something what does this mean and even above the emotional intelligence is the emotional maturity doing the right thing even if it doesn't feel good doing the right thing and honoring your spirit your authenticity and your purpose even if at the moment you don't understand how it fits into the plan okay and so um when you've met like an emotionally intelligent people, what is it about how they handle situations? You said it's someone who follows their intuition, but like, what does that result in kind of like work environments or in classes? Because I know we often talk about building emotional intelligence in for like the purpose of making sure that folks can work well together and whatnot. Some examples of people you've worked with that have had good emotional intelligence, like what would those be? Yeah. So one of the best examples I can give you is probably Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett says that if we can't manage our emotions, we can't manage our money. And I think that works true. So using emotional development in that, I'd say another great one is Oprah. Oprah definitely is in her path and her alignment. And from her, you know, she could be our mentor. She just doesn't know it. So these are great examples in society where we Mm -hmm. see people making decisions that are actually good for their soul. Oprah has great interviews on YouTube where she actually just 
describes to you how her emotional intelligence helped her get to where she's at. So personally, in me working with people, it's seeing their development of their intelligence shifting into listening to their intuition. Yeah, okay, that's so good. And I, um, it reminds me a lot, now that you mention it, like the ENT, like the Myers-Briggs and the different yeah. components. I think there's definitely like a personality type who's more, has more of the emotional intelligence. It's also knowing your attachment styles. So attachment styles are super important, especially since those are established in our childhood, our infancy. It's knowing, do I trust my caretakers? Am I ambivalent? Am I insecure? Why do I feel this way at work? Why do I feel this way with friends? So it increases our understanding of how we interact with others. Caretakers in regards to our needs. For example, if a baby is little and it has all its needs met, you know, it's, it's fed when it's hungry, it's put to sleep when it's sleepy, it's hugged when it's crying, or it's lonely, we know that if we ask for what we need, we get it. That's called secure attachment. Oh. That person, yeah, that person grows up and they say, oh, if I love my partner and I ask them to love, you know, with me, not love me, but love with me, they can understand that. They're able to communicate their needs in a healthy manner. People who are insecure with their attachment, ambivalent, or just not well-established, they're going to have difficulty in relationships. Those are the people that you see that are what people like to throw out the word bipolar, but really what it is, it's just an insecure attachment. It's they're hot and cold. You don't know if they like you that day. You don't know if they want to be in a relationship. They don't even know because when they were kids, they weren't sure when mom was going to feed them. They weren't sure when dad was going to come home and hug them and be with them. They had an unstable childhood or infancy. So it created that attachment style that is now going into their workplace, with their friends, into anywhere, really. Is there an attachment style that you work with the most or that you've, you've just come across the most? Is that, would it yeah. be like the insecure? Is that the, what you're describing? Absolutely. And I'd say a lot of us, a lot of us have insecure and mostly I'd say because I work with a, a culturally heavy based population in my practice, it's because of the trauma that's experienced, especially for children that are first born here generation. Their parents went through so much trauma that the parents had a difficulty meeting the needs of the child when their own needs weren't even met. Yeah, and that just, it just reminds me of the importance of what Yvette was talking about in terms of intergenerational tra trauma and like being able to better understand it because I think there's just, I think it's nice that the community is starting to realize that I've seen a lot of memes. I always use memes as a gauge of like what yeah. people are thinking about, but I've seen more memes about like, you know, when you heal yourself, you're like healing your ancestors as well and just like taking into consideration how generational trauma can be. Absolutely. And even the craziest thing that I ever learned about transgenerational trauma or just healing from our ancestors is this. I'm a female and I have a mother and my mother has a mother and my grandma had a mother and each of them, we were within their body. They carried us for nine months and they gave birth to us. They gave life. And inside each of us, they say that when we have trauma, literally the body cells mutate. They create more cholesterol, they create more cortisone because of the stress level, right? The anxiety. And each of those are passed down to DNA to DNA. That means that I am carrying my great-grandmother's trauma and anxiety and thus forth all the way down. Mm -hmm. So that means that I am literally biologically predisposed to have a much more higher level of anxiety than my ancestors. 
if you're part of community, you know, that has trauma or has experienced lots of trauma, you know, like what are some things that you would just encourage people to be intentional about in their day to day that might help just like in little ways? Because I think like the little things that we can do on the day to day are more accessible for individuals to think about. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think the best thing is just to to really reach inside themselves and find a good place to be vulnerable and speak on it. The biggest thing I always hear in any type of communities that experience trauma is I didn't know there was a Me Too. That's why I think that movement, the Me Too, was so big because there's women that came out and said, I didn't know anybody else felt this way or experienced this. Mm -hmm. And there's so much trauma that is experienced by the human, but we never care to share or we're scared to. So it's knowing that as human beings, we have so much more in common than we do different. Yeah, and I think being having vulnerable conversations with people you trust and you feel safe with is just also good because it, it encourages them to do the same. And so when you're able to be vulnerable, I think it's just a great example for others. So I like I like the reminder to just, you know, seek out um, safe situations in which we can be vulnerable with others. I think it's great. I want to be respectful of your time, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about, you know, you had a you had mentioned that you work a lot with other uh, professional women, and I just kind of wanted to get what you're ex- hear from you, your thoughts. Yeah, I love working with other professional women. You know, I network way more than I probably should just because I thoroughly enjoy human connection. And what I'm learning from other professional women is that you know, the the level of connectedness is definitely there. I love being in circles of women of color and just knowing what their experience has been. You know, the biggest thing I've learned from women in business is how to think outside the box for marketing and how to grow a business. I've learned some of the greatest techniques from other women here in LA. Um, is like, what do you mean by like thinking outside of the box? Like what is how I know nothing about marketing. So just what do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, one of the biggest things that I've learned is connecting where other women are at. So one thing that I've done is just started started talking with people and telling them what I do openly. But in the, in the manner I say, that's what's different. So I mean this. Instead of people asking like, oh, what do you do? I don't say, you know, I'm a psychotherapist in private practice. I say, oh, you know, I'm a Latina and I help other people connect with their family members better. I help other people with their baby mama or I help other people have a better relationship with themselves. That way it opens up much more conversation. So it's telling people what you're passionate about versus actually your titles or what you do. Okay, and I I see it's like it's just like kind of modifying your language and being just more um, intentional with what like what you're actually trying to say. Um, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And not only that, just connecting with other women in business over lunch, over coffee, over tea and connecting human to human. They say that most business isn't done within the the office or the round table. It's done at the dinner table and people like to do business with who they like. Yeah. So is I noticed that you have some um, videos on YouTube for folks who go like look at including just a little bit about yourself. So is that kind of something that you um, are doing so that you, people understand more what you do and just like does has that helped you like connect with the water, wider audiences? Yeah, it absolutely has, actually. So YouTube, I use it mainly as a resource for my clients. So it's that in-between, if they're not coming in for session or we see each other every two weeks, they can pop in, watch a video. But also, I'm a keynote speaker. So every time I speak, I will upload that video to YouTube for others to gather that information. Sometimes I'm a panelist at a networking event. So others can get to know what resources are there. It's much more about giving back than it is about receiving. And when I say that, it's 
every time I network with somebody, I ask, how can I further support you? And in doing so, it's knowing what is it that they need in that moment. And trust me, it, it comes back 10 times old. It sounds like you're really great at networking. And I, 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 so I struggle with networking a lot because I always feel like I don't networking. I feel like sometimes has a bad rep in that it's like, oh, you only want to connect with people because you want to get ahead or you want something from them. And I hate having any relationship that feels that way. So like I, I don't I'd rather always just like meet with a person one on one than go to like a networking event. So but I know I don't approach networking the best I should as best I could. So what are some tips about networking that you have for others who are uncomfortable with it? Yeah. And, you know, even when you say uncomfortable, it's understanding too. people have different styles. There's introverts and there's extroverts. So the introvert you'll see at a networking event, you know, they're in the corner they're sipping on their water their tea or their lemonade and then you'll see the extrovert that just walks in the room and they're like the party has arrived <laughs> so the, the best tips I could suggest is this and this has worked for me when I was still kind of shy and you know new to the game I would I have a button and the button says I help people find happiness or I help people increase their happiness or whatever it may be right and it's, it's an icebreaker so it's really just taking tools with you into the room that will help you feel more comfortable or saying I have the cutest tea or, uh, you know, the tea, uh, teacup Yorkie. Ask me about her. Mm. And then it opens it up. So other people will see that. It's written down. And they're like, oh, you have a dog. Me too. And connecting on what you do have in common. So it's not so much about asking like, oh, what do you do? It's asking, what are you into besides work? Do you like wakeboarding? Do you like skateboarding? Do you like salad with some tomatoes? And you'll have a couple chuckles there. It's other uh, otherwise, too, if people are into comedy it's having like cute little jokes you know about networking or how awkward it really is so it's making the best it's making lemonade out of lemons there at the networking event i've been to some that haven't been the greatest experiences but i have to say it's the mentality i walk in with it's the mentality of there's some amazing people in there that want to grow their businesses how can i help them with that and if possibly along the way there's a client that is interested great but it's not my main goal when i walk in See, that's what I like. Yeah, I like that having that kind of more like I'm interested in getting to know a person. I'm not as interested in getting to know what they can do for me. And I think it's when I feel like the event I'm at is too much about like, oh, like, let's just connect so we can help each other. That's when I get uncomfortable. So I, I like the I like the way that you approach them. That feels a lot more natural um, and like honestly, just a better way to connect with people in general. Yeah, exactly. And that's where the emotional development comes back in, right? It's asking like, hey, so how can I further support you? Those are the main key words and really mean it, but also follow up with it. If you say you're going to do something, be about your word, which is Don Miguel Ruiz, right? Be about your word. So what are your um, goals? I always like to ask people, you know, like, what are your goals? What are you working towards? You know, what are what are you hoping for right now? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, humorously, a lot of people ask me, like, Zee, you know, you're doing so much, you know, you're always busy, you're always moving and shaking. And I have an ultimate goal, I think I see within my life within four or five years, I'm 31 right there, you know, right now. And my goal is to literally have a baby within the next couple of years, you know, get married and just start a family, but also not have to tell my child, I can't breastfeed you because I have to go back to work. My greatest goal right now is to heal others and along the way heal myself but until I become a wife and mother this is absolutely it for me I love the work that I am doing and I think a bigger goal is growing a family and growing as a person by learning from my children yeah I like that you have um 
your goals in your life, like you're, you have your professional and personal goals and you're like working towards both of them. I, I, I always struggle to put goals for my personal life and I think of goals only in my professional life. So I think it's a, it, for me, it's an important reminder to like be a little bit more balanced. Yeah, absolutely. There's a there's a great show on Netflix and it calls Ozark, right? And the guy in the show says a man who only talks about business is a failure. And that really changed my perspective to really mix it up between personal goals and business goals. Yeah, yeah, it's an it's an important reminder. So before we close, is there anything else that you want to talk about or make sure like you get to just say before we close? Yeah, it's just if anybody ever needs help with mental health services or whatnot, there's great resources online. And one of the best ones is psychologytoday.com. It's an amazing resource where there's tons of therapists listed. You literally just put in your zip code, the insurance provider you have, or cash pay, and you find tons of options. Mental health is a click away. Great. I'll post a link to it in our website so that folks can see it if they missed it. Uh, Well, Z, thank you so much for helping us heal. Yes, thank you. Hey, yo, my dogs go weak, control the whole street And when it's time to bust, they don't get cold feet
Unfortunately, Cynthia is studying for the MPRE, the ethics portion of the bar exam, and so she can't join us for this intro segment that I'm recording right now. And I also have been busy this week at the National Lawyers Guild conference in Portland. And so the episode that we're about to bring you right now is a little bit different from our usual. Cynthia interviewed Z Lopez, who is a Latinx family therapist, and she shares with us her knowledge around collective versus individual focused therapy, Latinx-centered therapy. She shares about her experiences in grad school and gives really great networking tips. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the interview with Z Lopez.